Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, an honor to be here. Although it's a shame in a way that I had to follow Alvin. He's so charismatic. He was like a motivational speaker. We were talking backstage. I honestly had no idea that that's what it was going to be like when he came out. Um, not that there's anything wrong with him backstage, but when he started pacing and moving his arms all around, I thought, oh my God. I was hoping for a stutter or, um, or even a mute. So I had a um, very talkative uh, taxi driver in New York about two days ago. That was when my journey to Australia began. And uh, for anybody who's ever been in New York, you know that all taxi drivers in New York are talkative. But this was a particularly, especially talkative taxi driver. And what he wanted to talk about was travel, because that was sort of the essence of his life when he wasn't driving a taxi. He didn't have a family, he lived very modestly, and he would use any money that he saved up to go see the world. And so he wanted to know where I'd been and uh, what was the most interesting place I'd ever been. I thought, maybe Kyoto. You know, it's sort of ancient, sort of modern, sort of religious, sort of secular. And he said, eh, Kyoto's okay. I thought, wow, this guy is serious. And at this point, it became a challenge. It was no longer a friendly conversation. <laughs> so I said, well, how about Valparaiso, Chile? I mean, it's built on cliffs. You have to take funiculars to get from place to place. That is really amazing. And he said, yeah, Valparaiso's okay. I thought, my God. And so I said Venice, which was sort of the ace up my sleeve. I mean, the streets are, are water. It's awesome. There's nothing more magical than Venice. And he said, yeah, Venice is good. Venice is a good place. I said, Jesus, I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy. And we're going into um, Newark Airport. And he said, what, what airline are you taking? I said, United. And he said, where are you going today? And I said, Sydney. And he said, holy shit. <laughs> So, <laughs> so it was another reason to be excited about this trip. So I want to speak tonight about an urgent problem that has very ancient roots, and it's a, a problem whose response will shape our planet and shape also our humanity. Um, the question of eating animals is often considered a controversial one, um, a divisive one. It's in many ways an obvious choice for a festival of dangerous ideas. Um, it's perceived as scary. It's perceived as violent. Everybody knows what it's like to um, stumble upon or seek a video from a slaughterhouse or even at this point a video from um, the kind of farm that provides virtually all of the meat that we um, buy in supermarkets and eat in restaurants. It's a topic that can force us to face some of our um, deepest hypocrisies. And it's a topic that's often brought to us by messengers who are, um, who range from merely a little bit annoying to um, really aggressive. It's a subject that um, even the most moral and moralizing people in the world, even the kinds of people who would speak at a festival for dangerous ideas, tend not to touch. It's a subject that even the most um, thoughtful philosophers, with, with the exception of your Peter Singer, actually somebody that you should all be very proud to uh, claim as Australian. Um, and by the way, I say that as somebody who disagrees with many, many, many things that he says, but uh, greatly admires his um, philosophical insistence. In any case, it's a subject that, despite being so obviously philosophical, really isn't touched by very many contemporary philosophers. And it's a subject that, despite having such 
obvious and strong biblical resonance, the concepts of dominion and stewardship, is almost never spoken about by religious leaders. But what I want to suggest and talk about tonight, both in my remarks now and also in the question and answer session later, is that it's actually not a controversial subject at all. And that it's actually a subject that almost everybody agrees on almost completely when it's spoken about in the right way. And that what's dangerous is not the idea, but the framing of the idea. So what do I mean when I say that the framing is dangerous? It makes invisible something that, um, if it were only apparent, I think could um, instigate really radical change in the world, which is this very broad and powerful consensus that exists beneath the surface. The problem is we're not, as I said, talking about it in the right ways. We're not asking the right questions. So if I were to ask this audience, and I have no idea who comprises this audience. I, I don't know if you're all vegetarians. I don't know if you're all factory farmers. I don't know if you're more or less representative of the general population. But if I were to ask you um, the most extreme version of the question, which is probably is meat murder, my guess is probably about 90% of you or 95% of you would say no. Or you'd at least be made uncomfortable by the question. You'd at least not know how to answer the question. If somebody asked me, is meat murder, I wouldn't know how to answer the question. I'd ask um, the person who, who asked me to, to define the terms. You know, what do you mean, what do you mean murder? Uh, a less aggressive way to ask the question is, is it right to kill animals for food? And if I were to ask that of this audience, I think if you were at all representative of the general population, most of you would say, yes, it's right. There's nothing inherently wrong with raising animals to kill them, to eat them. In America, about 95% of the general population would say that that's perfectly, a perfectly fine thing to do. But if instead I were to say, is it right to have the farm system that we have? Is it right to have a farm system that is, according to the United Nations, the number one cause of global warming? Is it right to have a farm system that produces more greenhouse gases than everything else in the world put together? Is it right to have a farm system that treats animals in ways that would be illegal if they were dogs or cats? Is it right to have a farm system that we know definitively is making um, our continued use of antibiotics um, is, is, is putting in question our ability to use antibiotics in the future. You just won't find people who will say that that's a good system. People can respond to the system in different ways. Some people will, upon confronting the realities of factory farming, say, well, I'm never ever going to buy a factory farm product again. Some people will say that's kind of regretful, but life goes on. But what's important is the consensus, is the starting point. So 96% of Americans think that animals deserve some legal protection from cruelty. If you can find anything else that 96% of Americans agree on, I would love to hear about it. 96% of Americans don't believe that the world is round. Um, it's probably a diminishing number at this point. 76% um, of Americans think that farmed animals, not just dogs and cats, but the animals that we eat, deserve strict legal protection. It's, a, it's an amazing statistic. You know, 53% of Americans voted for Obama, and that was considered a landslide. 76% of Americans think farmed animals deserve strict legal protection from cruelty. And in a way, it's perfectly common sense. You know, who here wouldn't want to protect animals from cruelty? Who here um, would feel comfortable advocating or giving money to uh, a farm system that is wreaking such um, historically unprecedented environmental destruction. Um, now there are some important distinctions to be made um, because what I want to try to get at is part of the reason that we have a hard time talking about this, part of the reason that the framing of the question is so um, counterproductive is because we cre create certain false dichotomies. And one of them has to do with animals. And the dichotomy is between loving them and not caring about them. 
um, as if those were our only two choices. I actually don't love animals that much. I would be surprised if I liked animals more than most people in this audience. That doesn't mean that I have no concern for them. It doesn't mean that anything goes. My first um, visit when I was researching eating animals was not to a factory farm, but to something called Farm Sanctuary. There are actually a number of farm sanctuaries around the United States right now where they basically take rescued factory farmed animals and allow them to live out their natural lives. I thought this would be a good idea. I have been a city boy my entire life, never been intimate, platonically obviously, <laughs> with um, cows or chickens. Um, so I thought I, sh I should go and spend a day. And what I found was not that I wanted to knit them sweaters or give them names. Um, what I found is I actually wanted to just leave. I didn't find it um, particularly enriching. It didn't make me particularly happy. And I felt no deep connection with the animals. That's fine. That's fine. But it doesn't follow from that that anything goes. It doesn't follow from that that I would be comfortable with a pregnant animal um, being put in a cage so small that she can't turn around for the duration of her pregnancy. Um, just because we don't feel a strong instinct to afford an animal um, ultimate rights doesn't mean that we would deny them the most basic rights. And it's the same thing with, um, with our concern for the environment, of course. Um, I think that love for animals and environmental activism in any kind of genuine form are probably pretty rare things. I think that concern for animals and concern for the environment are, are nearly universal. Um, so we're in an odd position because most of us do have some concern for animals and most of us do have some concern for the environment. And yet, um, we have a blind spot for what is, not by a little bit, but by a lot, our most important relationship to animals and the environment. The United Nations said that animal agriculture is one of the top two or three causes of every significant environmental problem on the planet, locally and globally. Air pollution, water pollution, deforestation, loss of biodiversity. The UK climate chief, who is not a vegetarian, who is not a paying member of PETA, said that the only way to save the planet will be a global movement toward vegetarianism. And yet, we have a very difficult time talking about it. And as I said, I think it's because the framing of the conversation has set up a false dichotomy between caring ultimately and not caring at all. Those are the only choices. You're a vegetarian or you're not. That's all that there is. And I would even say that vegetarianism, which I think is the most powerful response to industrial farming, has in a certain way done a disservice to the war against factory farming because it furthers this on and off notion. And, you know, it's a very strange thing. We would never apply that kind of dichotomy to any other ethical realm in our lives. I am somebody who tries to tell the truth, as are, I assume, most of you. It so happens that every now and then I am not able to tell the truth. My mother comes down the stairs on her way out to... Um, I don't live with my mother, by the way. I'm just <laughs> making up a situation off the top of my head. Comes down the stairs wearing a dress. Oh, I'm going out. Does this dress look nice? I say yes. It's not as if I then lie at every available opportunity because my honesty has been infringed upon. I just say, well, I do my best to be an honest person, and every now and then I tell white lies. Uh, maybe a more apt example would be environmentalism. If I were to ask you, do you consider yourself an environmentalist, I imagine most people would find that a very difficult question to answer. I care about the environment. I try to make good choices, but I'm not perfect. There's certainly people who are um, making better choices than the choices I make. Um, speaking personally, I buy good appliances. I buy the light bulbs that um, are more energy efficient. I drive as little as possible. I certainly don't leave my car idling when I'm not driving it. Um, and yet, I flew here from New York. And everybody knows that flying is about the worst thing you can do in terms of your transportational 
footprint. But it's not like I got off the plane and called home and said, turn on the car. You know, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. That dichotomy doesn't make any sense at all. But for some reason with food, we've become so terrified of hypocrisy. So terrified of hypocrisy that we would rather not try at all than have our hypocrisy called out. Um, and I'm sure that any of you who are vegetarians have experienced or who've experimented with vegetarians, veg vegetarianism have experienced some. Um, <laughs> you might not even know if you've experimented with a vegetarian. Um, have experienced some version of this. So, you know, how many times in my life have I, have I uh, ordered, you know, asked at, at, a, um, at a restaurant, is there chicken stock in this soup? And the person across from me says, but you're wearing leather shoes. Or, but I saw you swat that fly earlier today. <laughs> I think that that discomfort speaks to two things. One is our limited vocabulary in this argument, um, in this conversation, I should say. You know, vegetarian, we know what a vegetarian is. We don't know what somebody who eats meat half the time is. We don't have a good word for that person. But I think our fear of hypocrisy also speaks to a kind of uni universal discomfort um, about eating animals. There's never been a, a culture in all of human history that had a um, truly and perfectly laissez-faire relationship toward eating animals. There's always been some kind of regulations. There's always been some kind of taboo. And the more aggressively somebody um, goes after me when having the conversation about factory farming, the more clear it is that that person cares. You know, if I w were making an argument for why everybody should switch the kind of paper towel that they use, you know, your kind of paper towel is terrible for the environment. Your kind of paper towel is it's hard to get people worked up. People, people might agree with you, they might think you're a schmuck, but they're not going to stand up and argue. Um, it's rare that I do a, a reading um, when someone doesn't stand up with something like an aggressive tone. And um, in a certain way, that, that tone is very pleasing to me, not only because you know, there's the potential for entertainment, but because it... <laughs> It speaks to that person's concern, and I find it can often be very effective to, to talk with that person for a while. Ask, why are you getting so worked up? What is it that's making you so angry? And what's revealed almost always is that we share an appreciation of the stakes. So, it's, it's hard to avoid puns, I'm sorry. Um, why is it important to move away from this dichotomy? Why is it important to open up a middle space for people to be what you could call hypocritical or you could just call um, personally ambitious. I think it's because people care, but most people are not going to become vegetarians. So what do we do? Do we throw our hands up in the air and say, that's it, we're stuck with what we've got? Or do we try to develop a new vocabulary that can help us as individuals and as communities um, move toward daily practices and move towards systems that better reflect our values. Um, I think there's very, very little chance that the members of this audience will, um, that even half the members of this audience will be uh, vegetarian in five years or in ten years, let's say. Very, very little chance. I think there's a, a significant chance that half of the meals eaten by this audience will be vegetarian in 10 years. And that has, of course, the same effect on the world. It's the same amount of um, reduction in, in meat consumption. And it seems to me that that's the direction the conversation should move toward, um, toward giving people ways to act on the care that they already have. There's a mistake in thinking that when we are talking about vegetarianism, we need to I shouldn't even say vegetarianism. When we're talking about what's wrong with factory farming, we need to persuade people. We don't need to persuade people. People share the, these values. They're nearly universal values. What we need to do is, is give them um, access to, to new behaviors that, that feel good instead of bad. There's a, a food writer in America named Mark Bittman. He writes for the New York Times 
who is sort of quintessential foodie, the kind of guy who will eat anything, you know, the kinds of things that most people here wouldn't eat. And um, he's also a very smart guy who's engaged with the realities of uh, industrial farming. And his solution is to be a vegan until five, and after five he eats whatever he wants. Um, now, when I talk about him, people often laugh or they giggle. And I think it's a kind of nervous giggle because we're being confronted with what seems like an almost perfect hypocrisy. You know, until five, you are... Uh, you carry yourself in one very strict way, and after five, you carry yourself in a way that would seem to be at the other end of the spectrum, the far end of the spectrum. But I think he's an, a very inspirational figure. It's not the, the life that I choose to lead. It's not my solution to the problem. But I think it's a very elegant one. And um, again, what we need to do is, is pursue models that work for us rather than, than models that discourage us from acting on our concerns. So along the lines of dangerous framing, it's, it's not just authors and activists and regular eaters who um, tell a version of this story. The industry tells a version of this story as well. And it's the most powerful and most dangerous version of the story. Most people by now have at least some sense of the deceitfulness and the manipulation that is... Um, involved in the industry's telling of the story. It basically boils down to trying to convince us that the farming that they do is another kind of farming. So most people hold in their minds a certain image of a farm which involves animals out on pasture, um, animals in sunlight, um, farmers who are present, maybe farmers who even, who even know their animals as individuals, um, healthy animals um, who are given a fair amount of space. So that image has almost nothing to do with the kind of farming that now dominates um, not only the American industry but the Australian industry as well, as well as in the European Union. And we can talk later about some of the differences. There are some important differences. But the kind of farming that's practiced now, factory farming, which produces more than 99% of the meat that's eaten in the United States and about 95% in Europe and probably just slightly less than that but still above 90% in Australia involves raising animals um, in um, enclosures in extremely high concentrations, involves valuing sometimes sick animals over healthy animals, feeding animals antimicrobials, sometimes antibiotics from birth until death, and um, environmental destruction as a rule. You know, there's a company in America, Smithfield, it's the largest pork producer, that had in one year 7,000 violations of the Clean Water Act. So if they'd had five violations, we would say, that's not good. If they'd had 50, we would say, somebody needs to keep a better eye on this company. But 7,000 is a business model. You know, 7,000 is on purpose. Um, the animal cruelty, it's, it's really important to, to state this and reiterate it. The animal cruelty, the human health costs, and the environmental destruction are not by accident. They are inevitable in a system that's designed in the way that it is. So, we have this one image in our minds that we respect and there's this reality which is universally repugnant. Nobody goes to a factory farm and leaves hungry. So what the factory farm industry has done is tried to persuade us that what they are doing is what we are imagining they are doing, which is why whenever you see an image on any kind of um, animal product, it shows grass or it shows a barn or it shows farm. I promise you, you've never seen um, meat with a label that shows a, an image of a windowless shed, despite the fact that um, more than 99% of chickens um, are raised in windowless sheds. So half of what, half of their version of the story is this kind of manipulation, this taking images and twisting them or taking words and twisting them to the point of either having no meaning or just being outright lies. The fastest growing sector in the American food industry is um, free-range eggs. Um, ten years ago, you probably couldn't find them in any supermarket. Now they sell them at gas stations. They're everywhere. The problem is free-range is a term that's not even legally defined. It has literally no meaning. So I could have 10,000 hens 
under this podium and sell their eggs at free range, perfectly legally. And I could sell them for, of course, more money than I could um, regular eggs. And it's a crime. And catching up to the, this deceit and this manipulation, um, unfortunately, has fallen to us. But the other half of the story that they tell is to tell no story at all. So getting into a factory farm is virtually impossible. In order to do it myself, I had to go in the middle of the night, I had to climb fences, I had to... I never technically broke the law, which is, I've been told, an important thing to say, but <laughs> it really felt like I was breaking the law. Um, just after 2001, the US government passed um, an Animal Terrorism Act, which makes acts of trespass on a farm um, not equivalent to acts of trespass on any other private property, but equivalent to an act of terrorism with very, very severe punishments, as you can imagine. Um, and it's interesting. You know, what's the most generous interpretation of that law? I guess it would be the government feared, maybe even rightly, that some foreign or domestic terrorist was going to try to poison our food chain, was going to try to make Americans ill, was going to try maybe to cause some kind of environmental destruction. There's just no way a terrorist could be as ambitious or successful as the factory farming industry has been. Um, 63 million Americans get... 63... Uh, I, I guess that's the terrorist portion of the audience. <laughs> finally, uh, finally, we're pointing at the real enemy. Um, 63 million Americans get foodborne illness every year, and the Center for Disease Control has said that the prime culprit, whether it's coming from vegetables or coming from meat, is the factory farming of meat. Um, and I've spoken a little bit already about the environmental destruction. It's, on, it's truly on a grander scale um, than anything we've ever faced before in any context. Um, so... My book, obviously, was one attempt to defy that silence, and was also one attempt to um, defy the, the verbal manipulation and deceit and to give a new language um, to this problem. I was very curious what would happen when my book was published. I had spoken with uh, a, a prominent food writer in America before uh, it came out, and he said, you know, you might think about getting bodyguards at your readings because the industry can be very um, intimidating. This was something that he'd experienced. Um, it was not something that I pursued. I did give my book to a couple of different lawyers because the industry is um, quite famous for aggressively suing people who critique it. Sometimes they're just nuisance suits. You know, there's no legitimate claim. But they just know that they can, um, you know, punish you financially just having to defend yourself at all. What was interesting was that there was no response whatsoever, zero. So my book was uh, a bestseller. I'm not saying this to puff myself up, but because it's going to be relevant in a second. The book was a bestseller. I gave interviews in print, uh, on the radio, and on TV. And there was no response at all. In fact, often when I would go on the radio or TV, the hosts would try to find... Uh, a, a, a voice of opposition, someone from the industry who would sit across from me and say, well, that's not exactly right. And they never had any success. Um, once or twice they sort of scraped the bottom of humanity's well and came up with some <laughs> total weirdo who had only the most marginal connection to the industry um, and basically served as my publicist. But, but really they, they, they couldn't find anybody. So you know, what does that silence tell us? It tells us maybe they're just raising the white flag. You know, maybe they're agreeing, although, of course, that's not what it tells us. I think it tells us something that we already know, which is the factory farming depends on ignorance. It requires ignorance. There's nobody, there is really nobody who, upon learning about what factory farming does, to the environment, to animals, and to humans, likes it more. There is no such person. Everybody likes it less. 
we have different ways, as I said, of liking it less. Some people are utterly repulsed. Some people devote their lives to trying to change our farm system. Some people, again, just say that it's regretful and move on. But there's nobody who likes it more. As I said, nobody visits a factory farm and leaves hungry. Um, the industry needs silence. The industry hates evenings like tonight. And to me, that silence is especially about a problem which is not only massive, but so desperately urgent. You know, if China and India start eating like Americans, which, and there's every reason to think that they will, we're going to have to factory farm twice as many animals, even if the human population holds level, which it won't. That would be 100 billion factory farmed animals every year. Silence about such a massive and urgent problem, to me, uh, seems like the most dangerous idea of all. So um, thank you for allowing me that sort of introduction to this topic, and now we can, I can try to entertain some of your questions. Thank you, Jonathan, for that wonderful introduction to those ideas and to your book, um, and I think to showing us some very interesting ways in which you know where the dangerous ideas are around this topic. We've now got some time to take some questions from you. Um, so just to give you a little bit of time to find out, we have four microphones in the audience. Perhaps we can have a little bit more light. Excellent. Numbered one, two, three, and four. We can see those numbers. You can't. But they're in the aisles downstairs and upstairs. So if you do have a question for Jonathan, um, make your way to a microphone um, and, and we will give you the, give, him, um, give you the opportunity to ask that question. Um, Jonathan, can I start off by asking, um, you, you really outline in the book and in your talk this evening how factory farming is an environmental disaster of absolutely enormous proportions um, and a health issue also in the same way. So that even if we don't think about the ethical or, or moral aspects of factory farming. This is an enormous problem. And it's not one that we have really given the kind of psychological prominence that we have to things like our dependence on fossil fuels. I mean, I think if you most asked many people, even people who would consider themselves to be environmentalists, they would be talking about those same things. They would be talking about fossil fuels. They would be talking about, you know, what we call emissions-intensive industries. Um, 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 those kinds, you know, the, what is emitting, em, emitting huge amounts of, um, of carbon. Why do you think that is so? Why has this not registered as, as an environmental issue? Just because it's so uncomfortable to speak about. And I think that environmentalists, maybe rightly and maybe wrongly, made a kind of wager that... Um, you have to remember, it wasn't comfortable to talk about the environment until fairly recently, or at least it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a, a prevalent conversation. Mm. It's only in the last, what, 10 years, 8 years, 6 years. So I imagine what people like Al Gore were thinking was, let's get them into the fold and then, and then at some point talk about the elephant in the room. It's not as if they didn't know. You know, Greenpeace doesn't serve meat at any of its functions not because of animal welfare reasons, but because um, of the environmental costs. And, you know, you, you said in, in the beginning of your question, most people know about the ethical issues, but not the environmental ones. The environmental ones are ethical issues. Um, and I wrote the book really as a new father. And a lot of the book focuses on the kind of stories that we tell and, and the ways that vehicle that, that food is our sort of primary vehicle of story, and you know one story that I tell my children and that I think every parent tells his or her children is to be careful with things that are important, um, not to be reckless with things that we need or things that we love. Um, in a way, that is like the foundation of all ethics, and um, and the relationship between meat and the environment very perfectly fits into it. So now you are seeing environmentalists talk about this much more, um, perhaps because they feel that their audiences are ready to, or maybe because they've been shamed into it. 
You know, Al Gore took a lot of heat for never talking about meat. And now when he speaks, he says, it's, it, you know, it's funny in, in um, An Inconvenient Truth, they have, they sort of interwove two things. One was this slideshow that he gives about the environment. The other was this weird personal history of him being a cattle rancher. You know, it, it's very, very strange. It's like having somebody give a speech about how x-rays are carcinogenic and smoking while they give that speech. It doesn't make any sense. They're strong, strongly opposing messages anyway. But, but he now speaks about it. More and more people are speaking about it. You know, one thing that's important to acknowledge is that it's not a fringe issue. Um, there are more vegetarians in, in American universities than Catholics. So... Um, <laughs> You, you wonder what that applause... Is it for something or against something? Or, <laughs> Maybe just for the nice juxtaposition. Maybe. Um, 18% of American college students describe themselves as vegetarian. It used to be the case that there were more vegetarians than would admit to it. Now more people admit to it than are vegetarian. It's, it's an aspirational identity in much the same way that driving a Prius is a kind of reflects a, 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 a social aspiration in addition to an ethical concern. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Um, and so when that 18%, when they become festival organizers and writers and politicians and dietitians and so on and so forth, the conversation will change. And that's all that's needed here is mm. for the conversation to change. It's not for values to change. I mean, it's a... It's a it's a unique problem. It is, it is clearly among the biggest problems in the world right now. I mean, I, I can't see any argument against that. But what distinguishes it from the other big problems in the world is the solution is small. You know, we don't need to go to war with another country. We don't need to spend trillions of dollars. We don't need to elect a new government or overthrow a government. We don't need to find new values. All we need to do is act on our own values. And acting on our values in this case is really relatively easy. You know, it may be that becoming a vegetarian isn't easy. I, I acknowledge that. If somebody says, I can't become a vegetarian, I've, I, have, I have no bone to pick with that person. But if somebody says that they're unable to reduce their meat consumption, you know, by one meal a week, or two meals a week or one meal a day, it's, that, that starts to seem strange. And so that's what we need to do. We need to like, start at the beginning rather than at the end and, and, and see how it feels. Mm. What I'll do is I'll try to be fair. So we'll go around to each microphone, starting with microphone one. And if you can please remember, everyone, ask a question, a question that is answerable potentially, um, rather than a very long statement. <laughs> Hi, Jonathan. Uh, I just wanted to ask you about something that you alluded to briefly before, and it's your shoes, which from here do look leather. Um, I'm just wondering, how, how do you reconcile not eating meat but still wearing leather shoes? Um, I don't know if that's the leather shoe industry. I, I, can't, I, I have no idea who applauds in this place. Um, <laughs> No, it's the silicon shoe industry, probably. Probably. Small. Probably. Um, these shoes are leather, and I um, don't buy leather products. I would not buy a pair of leather shoes. I wouldn't buy a leather belt. I wouldn't buy a fur coat. Um, I have owned these since um, my wedding, when I was a less informed person um, in, in many ways. And I think, <laughs> I think that there is a very strong argument for um, not wearing uh, something that you already own. I, mean, I think the argument against buying leather is pretty straightforward. It gets a little bit complicated. What do you do with things that you already own? I mean, who does it help you know, not, not to wear them? Um, I guess I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I, and I think it's good to talk about mixed feelings. 
um, in, this, in this case especially, um, because it makes it a more pliable conversation, a more accessible conversation. Um, um, you know, I would not eat meat that was already cooked and was going to be thrown away. So what's the difference, right? Why would I wear leather? One of the things that I speak about quite a bit in my book is the ways, are the ways in which um, nobody eats alone, um, that our eating choices are important, not only because we are choosing ourselves to ingest a certain product or with our money to support a certain industry, but because people see what we do. A great example of this is um, salmon farming. So salmon farming arose because fishery scientists realized there's so much pressure on wild salmon populations that if we continued to, to fish them as we were, there would just be none left. And so they tried to create an artificial population of salmon. But what happened, counterintuitively, was that as um, farmed salmon sort of exploded on the market, the pressure on wild salmon increased because the salmon eating habit increased. You know, eating habits are contagious. You see somebody at the table next to you who is um, eating salmon, and most people will not inquire as to where the salmon came from. They'll just say, salmon looks good. So there is an argument against what I am presently doing, which is I'm just somebody else who wears leather as opposed to being somebody else who, whether it's noticed or not, you know, makes a stand. Obviously, I don't find that an overwhelmingly persuasive thing. Um, I don't think it's a very big thing. Um, as I said, you know, I've made a certain choice about what I would buy now, knowing what I now know. But um, I guess I view this as slightly different. I, I, I liked your idea um, about being personally ambitious and sort of moving beyond the the straight-up dichotomy of the black and white. And, and what I find interesting about that is my girlfriend read your book and became vegetarian. And so that greatly shocked me because she's a medical scientist and every day she goes into work and kills animals. I, I'm just interested in what your idea about like medical research and animal cruelty um, in, in that sort of realm. Um, do you really feel that you can trust as a partner someone who every <laughs> single day... <laughs> It's only a matter of time before she runs out of animals at the lab. Um, so, so what do I think about that sort of contradiction? Is that what your question is? I think it's great that she's a vegetarian. I mean, we don't have to... Um, you know, the, 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 maybe the goal in life is to... Um, in a very complete way um, have our actions reflect our values but it doesn't happen for anybody um, and so there's no reason to fear the hypocrisies it's not to say that we should be complacent it's not to say that we should happily accept them but we punish ourselves so much you know, over these hypocrisies that again, they, it, it drives us to just willfully forget, or it drives us to willful ignorance. So, um, so I think it's you know I, I think it's a wonderful thing, what what she's done. It's another conversation, you know, animal experimentation. To be honest, I don't know very much about it. It wasn't in the purview of this book. I have some strong instincts about it, but it is a separate conversation. The interesting thing is. People often worry about eating habits being a slippery slope. Well, if I stop eating beef, then I'm going to have to at some point stop eating chicken. And at some point I'm going to have to stop eating fish. And at some point I'm going to have to stop wearing leather. And at some point I'm going to, and so on and so forth. Where does it end? I think a better way of looking at it is, if I don't say no to this, what do I say no to? You know, This is the worst thing that we do to the environment. It's the worst thing that we do to animals. And it's a terrible thing that we're doing to our rural communities, farming communities, and to our own bodies. So if I don't say no to this, what do I uh, say no to? To take it as a, a starting point. And the interesting thing is, caring is, um, it's like a muscle. You know, compassion is a kind of muscle. Action is a muscle. 
the more we do these things, the more we want to do. Um, I would not be at all surprised if your girlfriend at some point finds it herself hard to, either hard to reconcile those two positions or simply rather than framing it as a negative, as a positive, says like, you know, I would actually like to act on my values in this other arena as well. I don't know what she does. I don't know the way she does it. It may very well be that she is presently acting on her values, but um, the slippery slope is, is nothing to fear relative to, you know, inaction in the face of this, like, travesty of our time. Hi. You mentioned um, that if the people of China and India increase their meat intake, it could lead to a doubling of um, the level of factory farming around the world, which is a really scary prospect. I've recently um, been lucky enough to visit China quite a few times, um, and I was just bombarded with meat. Um, I'm not vegetarian, um, usually, but I don't eat meat all the time. And when I was over there, I just, after a few days of, you know, wanting to make friends with everyone and going along with whatever happened, started to feel really sick. Every meal was just, um, you know, dish after dish of all kinds of meat, quite a few types of meat that are unpalatable in places like Australia. Um, so I, I guess I just wondered, um, I'm just curious about that, because it seems to me that the Chinese people, or I realise that my example may not be entirely representative, but it just seems to me that the people of China are already eating an incredible amount of meat. Um, I'm curious as to how much room you think there is to grow in a place like China in terms of meat consumption. Well, you had a particular experience there because you, you know, are you. Like, you were visiting... Uh, 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 in what context were you visiting? I was visiting for work. So you're visiting for work, so you're probably being taken out to work meals, right? So you're eating a certain kind of like celebratory or festive food, food that is supposed to signify something. Traditionally, the Chinese have eaten actually very little meat. Um, they eat meat regularly, but in very small quantities. Um, and this, by the way, is true of every, almost every cuisine internationally. Um, historically, they've been predominantly um, vegetable-based and grain-based and not meat-based. Meat has always been used almost everywhere, but usually as a kind of garnish. And that, you know, was not for ethical reasons, but just because of the availability of meat. It's not until the last 30 years, 50 years, that um, our dietary habits have changed in such an extreme way. In America now, we eat 180 times as much chicken per person as we did 100 years ago. That is a crazy statistic. And it's not... And it's a statistic that's worth really exploring. You know, could we really call that consumer preference? Is it really the case that Americans just decided that chicken was delicious in a way that they hadn't realized before? <laughs> um, obviously not. What happened was the techniques of farming changed, the value of chicken changed, and I, in certain ways, most frighteningly, our, our, our notions of what a meal is um, changed. So, you know, chicken was traditionally, like, roasted in an oven um, for a good amount of time, was served uh, on plates with plate settings at a table that was set with a family that would eat the meal over the course of an hour. Um, that is not the 180 times as much chicken that we eat now. Now it's chicken that's eaten with one hand in a car. Really, it's, it's, this, is, this is what it is. This is what factory farming is. This is what meat consumption is. And so it's worth asking ourselves, what do we get in return for all that we've given up? Um, one of the things that we've given up, um, in addition to all of the other effects that I talked about earlier, is the dinner table. Is, you know... Um, slow food in the full sense. Where is it that families tell stories? Where is it that families transmit values? You know, where do parents learn about what their kids did that day, if not at a dinner table? It's not on Facebook. It's not on Twitter. 
And I think that industrial farming has robbed us of any kind of deep food culture. And, um, you know, as food becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, we value it less. What we, what we don't value monetarily, we usually don't value emotionally. Um, and it would really be nice to get that back. Hi, um, hi, Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for being so present and um, speaking so completely from the heart this evening. It's wonderful. Um, my name's Una, and I'm an aspiring vegan. I dealt with the um, issue around leather by giving away everything that I could, that I could live without, and keeping a few old pairs of shoes and being at peace with that, basically, and just knowing where I'm at. Um, I just wanted to ask you, I have a friend here, and we were both converted to being aspiring vegans after watching um, The Cove and learning that you know, a lot of mercury-rich dolphins are slaughtered and repackaged as whale meat and potentially poisoning a lot of people in China. Um, and also Earthlings, which talks about how we've addressed sexism, ageism, um, and lots of other kind of prejudices, and yet how we relate to our fellow creatures, we still kind of um, are prejudicial against them. So we're all Earthlings, but we, we're prejudiced. And I just wondered, my question really was, through, through becoming vegetarian and an aspiring vegan, one of the things that I've noticed, and this is picking up on what you were saying about what do we get back for what we give up, is that my um, baby steps, learning how to meditate, be present in a moment, um, be more in my kind of third eye and crown, which I know is going to be a bit wacky for some people. But for be those of us here that are, <laughs> for those of us that here that do meditate and that kind of thing, I noticed that um, energy didn't descend into the stomach to have to kind of chew up all this dead kind of, you know, courtesan that I'd eaten, other animals, and that it kind of ascended and made um, spiritual connections and kind of compassion and that sort of muscle more flexible. And I'm just interested in your experience. Have you noticed anything spiritual um, or anything that's to do with getting into your heart or expanding compassion um, that you'd like to share that has also happened through eating a more living, healthy diet? Ethically. Well, I, I tried meditating once, and only once. Um, I found the idea of banishing thoughts unpleasant <laughs> itself. Not just difficult, but... Um, you know, why would I want to banish thoughts? So, so... I don't banish them. It's not, it's not an either-or. It's just sometimes I banish them, and then I have a lot. Right. Um... You know, listen, different people have different relationships to food and different people have different relationships to their, the choices that they make. There is no one pathway. And, and again, this is part of what can be so frustrating about this conversation is it suggests that there's one pathway. You know, I know vegetarians who could not possibly care less about animals, but um, care an awful lot about the environment. I know vegetarians who do it only for health reasons. Um, I know people who deeply care about animals and the environment um, and eat only free-range meat. You know, they don't reduce their meat consumption at all. We should strive for as many solutions as possible. I mean, what we should strive for is the, the reducing our, our dependence on and support of industrial farming. Um, there are many ways to do that. One is to seek other methods of farming. You know, something we haven't talked about at all is that there are other kinds of farmers. Um, factory farming, as I said, um, is responsible for 99% of the animals that are eaten in the States, but there is a 1%, and they take up a lot more than 1% of my book. Um, and in fact, those farmers have probably been the strongest advocates of my book, not animal rights groups. Um, so there are different approaches to take and they can be, you know, very respectable and they can be one's own business. What seems hard to respect is not taking a step, knowing what we now know. You know, we have a different responsibility than maybe our parents did or certainly than our grandparents did. Um, as I say in the book, future generations will look back at our generation and say, what did you do when you learned the truth of the factory farm? because it's becoming increasingly difficult, and I would even say impossible, to um, plead ignorance. Yeah. 
I, I guess I really meant more, did you have we, any, what have you noticed in your own life that I, has changed? I think we're going to need to move on. We've just got five minutes left. So what I'm going to try and do is get two quick questions in. And I'm sorry we won't get to everybody here, but if we can go back to the first microphone. Hi, sorry, I'll try to be succinct. Um, I eat with my pocket, as I think a lot of people do. I don't eat much meat, um, and that has a lot more to do with how much money I have at the time. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's a bit of a shame. Um, I think at the moment, uh, maybe recently in Australia, I don't know if you've been following, but we had this uh, thing with the, the images of these animals being slaughtered. Uh, we also had, had this carbon tax issue. And the biggest issue, it seems to be, for Australians is this economic priority. It's whether we're willing to, to, to give up this, um, this emotional connection, whether it's right or wrong, uh, and whether this is something that we're willing to forego for the economy. There seems to be this intrinsic inherent link in the spin and in the dialogue on this issue to do with whether it is worth it, as if it's somehow going to affect Australians, as if a carbon tax or as if regulating slaughterhouses is going to affect Australians. So what message do you have to those, to the spinners, to those who agree with the spin? What message or a, a really basic uh, solution or instruction do you have to, to kind of affect this change in priorities or uh, influence the way in which people uh, consider meat as opposed to our pocket? Well... You know, vegetarianism is sometimes cast as an elitist stance and that doesn't make any sense to me um, think about every menu you've ever faced in any restaurant you've ever been in you know the vegetarian option is always the cheapest option always 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 it is as a rule cheaper to eat as a vegetarian than as an omnivore it, but it involves cooking it involves access to certain kinds of food and it involves time which are things that some people don't have. Um, there are people who live in what we call um, urban food deserts in America, which means the only access to any food they have within walking distance is like a McDonald's or a little food mart, the kind of place where they couldn't possibly be expected to eat, you know, to have ethics at the top as a top priority when they're eating. One thing that isn't spoken about enough is the actual cost of meat, because the price that we pay at the cash register is extremely misleading. It doesn't take into account um, the environmental destruction. It doesn't take into account the human health costs. It's obviously impossible to quantify animal welfare. There was an environmental group that did a study um, a little bit after my book came out, so I wasn't able to include it, where they tried to quantify just the environmental costs of a $1 hamburger, like a McDonald's hamburger, um, putting aside all, all other costs. And they said it would be um, a little more than $100 for a hamburger. And it's not a made-up number, and it's not a hypothetical, and it's not a joke. You know, if it is the, one of the top two or three causes of every significant environmental problem on the planet, as the United Nations um, wrote in a report that everybody should read called Livestock's Long Shadow, it's, it's, it's really distressing and interesting. Um, so what happens to that? Like, who, who ultimately pays for that? Because somebody will pay that bill at some point down the road. Maybe we, we can defer it. We can, you know, put it in the mail to our kids or to our grandkids. But the price of meat is exorbitant, even if it seems cheap. So when we're talking about these economic issues, we have to be frank about what we are actually talking about. Um, and then, as I was saying about eating, um, how eating vegetarian is cheaper, and generally speaking, more healthy. I don't get too into the health um, issue because I think people can do whatever they want with their own bodies. If you want to, you know, smoke, drink, whatever, it's up to you. I don't think the healthfulness of vegetarianism is a reason to become a vegetarian, but I do think we should take the issue of health off the table as an argument against vegetarianism. You often hear people say, well, where would I get my protein? Well, you know, the American Dietetic Association which is no kind of animal rights group and has no kind of vegetarian agenda, has said that um, vegetarians tend to have a more optimal protein intake than meat eaters. You know, the problem is we're eating too much protein or the wrong kinds of protein. Um, before I went to Farm Sanctuary, I should say, in, in, in my talk, I said Farm Sanctuary was the first research stop that I made. It wasn't actually. The first was to nutritionists um, because, you know, writing this as a father, 
there are a lot of things that I care about. I care about the kinds of stories I'll tell my children. I care about, you know, what our family's um, relationship to the natural world, to the animal world will be. But there's nothing that I care about as much as I care about their health. And if it turned out that eating meat was necessary, we would eat meat, and that would be the end of it. Um, I only went to meat-eating nutritionists. I did not talk to any vegetarian nutritionists. And their responses were consistent. And if you read the literature, it's consistent. It is at least as healthy to eat as a vegetarian. And most nutritionists will go further than that. You know, Michael Pollan, who writes extremely well about these issues, um, when talking about the, um, the, the nutritional aspect, the health aspect, said it can get very confusing. And it can very, get very difficult to separate out all the strands. But one thing that we know, which has been shown across studies and across studies that remove all of the variables that would otherwise explain it, like socioeconomic background and so on, vegetarians live longer. This is just a fact in the world. Vegetarians live longer than omnivores. And if, that, if living longer isn't what we mean by healthfulness, it's, it's hard to know what we're talking about. You know, that, that's what it means. I want to be healthy because I want to live longer. That's the point of being healthy. Um, so it is not easy, you know, when you have a certain number of dollars in your wallet to make choices that reflect your values. And there are a lot of forces that try to confuse you, try to make you think something is cheap when in fact it's incredibly expensive, try to make you think something's healthy when in fact it's destructive, try to make you think it's sustainable when it's the opposite. So we have to be armed with information. You know, there's nothing more powerful than being an informed consumer. And then, every time you're in the supermarket and every time you're at the restaurant, you have an opportunity. You know, that's how I think about it. I am somebody, of course, I could describe myself as a vegetarian, but I, I really think of myself as somebody who eats as little meat as possible. And for me, that amount is zero. Final question. Given you brought up this issue of definition or naming of the, I guess, ways of eating along the spectrum between the careless carnivore and the love piece among being vegetarian, uh, just wondering what you think of these two um, terms that have come up in my life, um, uh, sustainable semitarian or an organic omnivore? Sustainable semitarian. Sustainable semitarian. You know, I don't... <laughs> I, I mean this in a way that is not disparaging, what I'm about to say. <laughs> but really, who cares what you are? I don't mean who cares what you are. I mean, who cares what you're called? Like, you're somebody who's trying to eat well. That's what you are. And... I have found that the labels only serve to make us uncomfortable. And labels only serve to discourage us from trying to be who we want to be. And that if instead we had, you know, the flexibility of choices in front of us, you know, not I am so-and-so, so in this situation I'm going to try to do this, and if I fail. I have met so many people, and I'm sure you have too, who are lapsed vegetarians who said I was a vegetarian for five years, then I found myself in an airport at midnight, and the only thing that was open was this, and so I ate chicken, and that was the end of my vegetarianism. <laughs> if they weren't... If it weren't for that identity, you might say, well, they wouldn't have lasted six years. But if it weren't for the identity, they wouldn't have a lapsed identity. You know? Um, so... Uh, this is not an argument against vegetarianism. I think vegetarianism, as I said, is the most powerful response to factory farming. And it's what I've chosen for myself. And it's what my wife has chosen for herself. And it's what we've chosen for our kids for as long as we choose for our kids. At some point, they'll choose for themselves. Um, but we have to just be really, really careful with our terminology and make sure that we're always referring to the problem and not the solution, if that makes sense. You know, that we're not referring to um, what we call ourselves on any given day, but referring to the fact that um, we have this global industry of epic proportions that 
if we knew about it, if we could confront it, would be repugnant to every single person in this room. Every single person walked into a factory farm who learned how animals live, putting aside slaughter, who, you know, learned what it's doing to their environments locally, nationally, would say, this is not for me. So we take that as, as the starting point. I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who waited patiently in the microphones, but we have run out of time. I'd like to thank Jonathan for a wonderful conversation about some of the things that, in fact, we find it very hard to talk about and that we don't talk about, and for giving us some very user-friendly, pragmatic uh, tools to go out and deal with that problem. One of the things that Michael Kirby said this morning was that it's very important not just to talk about dangerous ideas because if all that happens is talk, it's a lot of hot air. Um, and his uh, exhortation to everyone was to go out and do something about the dangerous ideas that matter to them. So I think uh, Jonathan is going to provide that opportunity for many of us, not in a way where we're forced to choose between uh, two unpleasant realities, but a way in which we can be as ambitious as we can and aspire to something better. So thank you very much to Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.